corporate America hates the word fun because they think it doesn't imply business results. You can't change a culture by talking about it. You have to give people a toolkit they choose to use when you're not around. So make it fun. And then you can change a culture. Hello, and welcome to Sink or Swim, a bi-weekly podcast brought to you by RentSync, where we provide an insider's look into the prop tech, multifamily, and rental housing industry. In each episode, we take a deep dive into the technologies and strategies that have helped companies overcome operational challenges and increase the value of their multifamily investments. So without further delay, let's get into today's discussion. Welcome back to Sink or Swim. I'm Mitch Fanning with RentSync, formerly LWS. And today is a special episode because joining me today is Duncan Wardle, who is or who was the former uh, head of innovation and creativity at Disney. And drawing on that experience is now a highly sought after keynote speaker and innovation creativity consultant who works with a number of companies, including Apple, the NBA, MBA, and, and many more. Duncan, how are you doing today? Hello, good. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for, thanks for coming on. Now, before we start, you know, I, I have to ask, did, did you have anything to do with the MBA resuming its season at Disney? And the reason I'm asking, I, I see that you've worked with the MBA. Uh, I know that you obviously worked at Disney. I, I just had to ask, was there a connection there? Did you make that deal happen? <laughs> no. <laughs> However, um, but here's the interesting thing, because I got a call from Adam Silver two, three years ago. And he said, I got a bet. I said, oh, yeah, what's that? He says, virtual basketball revenue will exceed real basketball revenue by the year 2040. I was like, okay. And, and now think of the post-COVID world. I'll go out with a fairly bold and provocative statement. The sports industry is dead. It just doesn't know it yet. And what I mean by that is it will be surpassed by virtual sports within 20, maybe 30 years, but I think 20. The move to virtual is coming so fast. And so we actually piloted two teams. We piloted the virtual Orlando Magic against the virtual New York uh, Knicks. It was three years ago. On average, you know, the Orlando Magic get about 14,000 people to a real game. In a virtual game, they got 28,000 people to show up in person, obviously pre-COVID-19. And they had about 2 million watching online. And they, I think they made about half a million dollars in virtual merchandise. So yes, I believe virtual basketball will be in the Olympics by 2036. And I see their luck. You know, sports is becoming, look at sport, right? It used to be sport. Right now you go to a basketball game and every now and then a game of basketball breaks out between the cheerleaders, the dancers, the popcorn girl, the, um, the, um, the dance, uh, the, uh, the t-shirt firing competitions, the, the, the dunking competitions. And then every, every sort of half an hour, so you get a bit of basketball. So it is becoming entertainment and entertainment is moving virtual. Um, just look at the last 90 days. You used to go to shops. Now you use Instacart for your supermarket shopping. You use Amazon for everything else. You used to go to restaurants. Now you use Uber Eats. You used to go to the gym. Now you've got a virtual gym. Will we go back in the numbers that we used to after there's a vaccine? No, we will not. Uh, will you shake hands with another human being again as long as you live? No, you will not. Another provocative statement. Not really. It's common sense. Shaking hands is a habit and you won't do it until at least a year after the vaccine is in. And by that time, the habit will be broken. Now multiply that, that one simple gesture of the human race by all the changes that are coming into industry. I mean, 
you and I were talking just before we came on about you know the, the moving from big cities to small cities. Co corporate America has just realized it no longer needs to fly. We used to go out in the Disney shuttle. It was called the Disney shuttle because everybody on the plane on a Monday morning was from Disney going from Orlando to LA for a two-hour meeting. Do you think that's going to happen again? Absolutely not. Corporate business travel, gone forever. So can the airline survive when all of their model is, you know, the first class passenger? No, probably not under that premise, because nobody is going to send their teams across the country to a two hour meeting anymore because they Absolutely. suddenly realize, apart from carbon emissions, you've got the cost. I lose Duncan for three days. Uh, but if I put him on a, in a Zoom, he can do it in two hours. So um, what does that mean for corporate real estate? That's gone. It's, exactly. uh, it's, the acceleration is not, it's, it's terrifying and exciting at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew we'd go off script at some point. Sorry. Uh, I didn't know we, <laughs> we so didn't go, <laughs> we, we do so soon. And, and so I, I should have expected it, but, but just to tie off that, I, I, I want to, I want to extend a thank you though. Uh, yeah, regardless, because, um, um, you know, we've got a lot of, uh, we've got a lot of, uh, Raptors fans in our office now. If, if there's anything you can do to help their odds uh, in the next game, that would be that would be grateful. But today we're gonna we're gonna talk all about innovation, obviously, and creativity. Uh, we're gonna riff on on many different topics, and we you know we already have uh, started to give some people some context here. Also, um, Jason, the president, and I actually met you at, uh, and we were talking about this. Met you at uh, industry conference that we saw we did uh, before COVID happened, and we saw that your keynote on 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 the theory of creativity, and we just loved it. And we actually were thinking of having you with uh, do uh, a keynote at one of our events before all this craziness. Um, but also, I thought it'd be an interesting time to talk about this because you know there's that old saying that winners of economic downturns don't cut, they accelerate. But I would almost add to that that they they accelerate and innovate. And so I think this is uh, even though this episode is not specific to our industry, which is kind of the multifamily or real estate technology industry. Mm. Uh, indirectly it's it's very relevant so before we kind of get into that and we kind of you know keep the conversation moving along maybe we can start off with a, a short story of how you ended up as the the head of innovation and creativity uh, at disney luck <laughs> no. so um so i got a job i was a barman in the rose and crown pub at epcot that was my first job uh, at uh, disney world and I went back to London and I got a job in a pub there and I called the Disney office every day for 27 days and um, they got fed up with taking my call. So I got a half hour interview and I became the cappuccino boy. And um, three months into the job, I was asked to be the, uh, the character coordinator for the royal premiere of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It was 1988. It was in the presence of the Princess of Wales, Diana. And um, I was told, you, you just look after the character. Thought, okay, I can't screw that up. Well, a contingency plan. So all I had to do was stand at the bottom of the stairs. Roger Rabbit would come bouncing down the stairs. The princess would come in along the receiving line. If she chose to engage with Roger, great. If she moved straight into the theater, tough. How could you possibly screw that up, right? So I thought, well, that's, that was the day when I found out what contingency plan was because I didn't have one. <laughs> so, so Roger comes bouncing down the stairs. Now, contingency plan would tell you, you'd have got a tape measure out and you, the average step on a stair is probably about the same length as your foot, right? Unless yep. you're a six foot five rabbit with one and a half <laughs> feet length of feet. So Roger, with six steps to go, trips over his own feet and is now very quickly hurtling directly through the air towards the head of the Princess of Wales. <laughs> whereupon two secret surface officers popped out of nowhere and just took him out. I mean, they flattened him. 
They didn't even hesitate. So there's a very famous photograph, you can see it on Reuters website, it's in black and white, of uh, Roger on the ground with his hands up in the air, so the classic Roger star. And then two Secret Service heavies on top of him. And then this young 21 year old in a suit and tie at the back called Duncan going, shit, I'm fired. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I didn't go to the office the next day because I assumed I had been fired. I got a call. He said, where are you? I said, I'm at home. I said, well, I assumed I was fired. And he goes, no, no, no. This is exactly the sort of publicity we needed for Roger. Rabbit. I was like, oh, my God, I can make a career out of this. And so for the, so for the next 20 years, I just did the most audacious, outrageous uh, stunts for Disney. I sent my son's Buzz Lightyear into space on a space shuttle. He is the longest serving astronaut in space, 18 months consecutive service. <laughs> I built an Olympic sized swimming pool for Michael Phelps to swim down Main Street US. I stole the turkey from the White House at Thanksgiving and took it to do. So I was just like a kid in the candy store. And about 10 years ago, I got a call from the chairman. He said, Look, you're the guy with all the big ideas who actually seems to get them done around here. You're going to be in charge of innovation and creativity. To which my exact response was, well, what the hell is that? <laughs> and he said, I don't know. We just need more of it. I was like, wow, thanks for the brief. Um, so the first thing I did, because I didn't know what I was doing, I thought, okay, I'm going to survey. Uh, we surveyed 5,000 people and we asked them, what were the barriers to being more innovative and creative at work? And we heard five. By far and away, the number one was... I don't have time to think. Always the number one. Number two, uh, risk, we're risk-averse culture. Number three, consumer insight is being underused. We're a product-centric culture. Number four, ideas got stuck, diluted, or killed as they moved through our processes. And number five was we all had a different definition of innovation. So we're all heading in a different direction. So I thought, hmm. So I tried four models of innovation. Model number one was easy. I brought IDEO in and said, hey, here's the brief. Make me look good. <laughs> because I didn't know what I was doing at the time and they were the gurus of innovation. Well, yep. yeah, great. But with any consultancy, they come in for a period of time and guess what? Then they leave. And yep. then you have to ask yourself, have they taught you anything about how they do what they do? And of course not. Otherwise you wouldn't hire them. So you thought, okay, I'll create, I'll build an innovation team. I'll be in charge of it. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, if you have a legal team or a sales team or an IT team, does anybody else in your office do legal sales or IT? No, of course not. Well, guess what happens when you create an innovation team? You've just told the sublimity, the rest of the organization, hey, you're off the hook. <laughs> We've got an innovation team. You just exactly. keep doing business the way you've always done. And so then we did an accelerator program where we found we would bring in young tech startups where we found we could take um, products and services to market much quicker than we usually had because they weren't governed by our constraints. But here's where we had failed on our brief was we want to embed a culture of innovation into everybody's DNA. We thought, hmm, I have not done it. And so, um, and then after 30 years at Disney, people said, well, why'd you leave your head of innovation creative? Are you mad? I was like, no, I'm not mad. It's easy. There's a monstrous gap in the market and it's been accentuated through COVID-19. All we hear our bosses say is, we must innovate. You must think differently. We must be brave. You must take risks. And all of us are sitting there as I did at Disney and go, how? Tell me how. And nobody's ever showed anybody how. So I thought, screw that. Um, I'm going to leave and I'm going to create a toolkit that makes innovation easier, creativity tangible, and the process fun. Um, corporate America hates the word fun because they think it doesn't imply business results. You can't change a culture by talking about it. You have to give people a toolkit they choose to use when you're not around. So make it fun. And then you can change a culture. It's interesting because, you know, number. so the first thing I got from that is we need to have a part two on just how you went from being a bartender to uh, <laughs> uh, the second thing it was what I heard was uh, grit, persistence, trial and error, and willingness to fail. And those are all really scary and, but also core to really, 
I believe just being successful, but also, you know, maybe the, 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 the root of, of creativity uh, and, uh, or, and innovation. I, I think before we kind of talk about the how, I think it's important to kind of define it, maybe in your words, what, what creativity and innovation means. So yeah, can we, well, so, maybe we can, we can go oh, start sure. there. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. This is easy. Creativity is the ability to have an idea and everybody can. Innovation is the ability to get it done. Um, I oversimplify everything. It's because people understand it. But here's the thing. People in every single industry, legal, IT, sales, finance, marketing, engineering, operations. Oh, you're not creative. Oh, the creatives. No, no, they're on the second floor. And suddenly we've all grown up. But here's the thing. When you were a little boy, you got a box for your birthday. It was, came in a monstrous big present came inside it. It is a massive box. And you took the present out of the box and you played with the gift for about two hours. And what did you spend the next five days playing with? The box. Yeah, because it was your castle. It was your rocket ship. It was your fort. It was anything you wanted it to be. And then you went to school and the teacher told you it's just a box. And then they said, color it inside the lines. It was the first thing you were told at school. So we're, our, our creativity is being attacked from a very, very, very early age. We're all born curious. Uh, do you have ch ch small children? Uh, I, I did at one point. No, yeah. Well, that's good. so think, think back to when they were young. Yep. What's the one word, one word question they ask you time and time and time again? Why? Why? Why, 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 why? Because they know you lied the first time. That's why. And so <laughs> they're actually better than, they're actually better than your data and your consumer insights team at getting to the insight for innovation. Why is that? Because they don't stop at the first why or the second why. If I survey people, if I surveyed everybody in Toronto and Niagara today and said, why do you go to Disney on holiday? The number one answer I'll get on a survey is I go for the, uh, go for the rides. Okay, great. Terrific. That's about, that tells me to spend $240 million on capital investment strategy. But if I paused for a moment and act childlike, not childish and said, well, why do you go for the rides? Well, I remember it's a small world. Well, why is that important to you? Well, I remember the music. Why is that significant? I used to go with my mum. Why, why is that so important? I take my daughter now. On the fifth why, you've got to the insight for innovation. She's got, is not coming for a new capital investment strategy. She's coming for her personal memory and nostalgia. That is a communication campaign, not a capital investment strategy. But if we stop at the first why, we never get to the insight for innovation. So we're all born creative. We're all born curious. We're all born with an amazing intuition. Have you ever stared at the back of the head of somebody and they, you think they're really hot and they immediately turn around and looked at you and you had to look away really quickly and blush? Yes, of course we have. <laughs> we, we all have. How did they know? It's called intuition. You have 100 billion neurons in your first brain. It's the one inside your skull. You have 100 million neurons inside your second brain, the one in your stomach. The decisions you make every single day as a consumer and to a certain extent with business, what did you say? I went with my gut. Um, it's a remarkably powerful tool. We were tasked by Disneyland Paris to get more people to come more often, spend more money. Our data told us who could afford us, who had an affinity to the brand, who was a 10 out of 10 of them coming this year. Well, guess what? They hadn't come. So my intuition told me our data was missing something and these people were either liars or procrastinators because they were 10 out of 10 of uncoming, but they didn't come. So we went off with our, the data that we had got, what I call our got clues, and we spent a day with our consumer. You'll be amazed at the insights for innovation you can find out of simply spending a day in your consumer's living room because sometimes it will reveal something that's in your data, but guess what? That's on page 37, bullet point 14, and you're already worried about what's for dinner tonight. And you can't feel bullet points. And so we spent a day with our consumers, and here's what we found. Now, 
close your eyes for me if you would okay there's a photograph of your children somewhere in your house a particular one that you're thinking of at this particular moment in time tell us where which room it is in it's in my office okay and um can you tell us who's in the photograph uh it's my daughter and son okay and what are their names me and dylan me and D mia and dylan and how old were mia and dylan the day that photograph was taken uh about seven or eight okay and today uh they're 21 they're twins bingo we found oh lovely i'm a twin i've got a twin sister um I'm going off script again. So <laughs> here's the thing. We found the same clue in every household I, we walked into. We were in 26 households and we all came back together and we all had exactly the same clue. When I asked how old the children were in the photograph, they were anywhere from two years to 22 years old, older in reality. And our intuition told us there's something going on here. So why, why is this? Well, um, and for those of you listening to the show who are too young, who don't have children yet, how do I know it to be true? Because your parents have that dorky one of you in first grade in the middle of their living room now that you wish they got rid of years ago. That's how I know it's true. <laughs> it's in every household on the planet. So what's going on? Do we not print photographs of our children anymore? Yes, we do. I bet you printed a picture of Mir and Dylan on their graduation, uh, you know, on their bar mitzvahs. Yeah. Uh, 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 yeah, of course we did. But why, so why is that photograph still there? Right, because, uh, and so my my intuition told me we were missing something. So we dug a bit deeper, uh, and we parents would tell you, as you would, I'm sure, we want Mia and Dylan to grow up, to go to middle school, junior school, high school, college, be happy, uh, graduate, be happy and healthy, successful. That's what you want for your kids, right? Absolutely. Now you're lying to me. You're lying to me. You want <laughs> Mia and Dylan back in that photograph when they're six and seven, and you're still their god. They come running to you when you walk in the door. Now you're lucky if you get a grunt when you walk in the door. Yeah. It's true. Why do we love our grandchildren so much? They're right back in the frame. So we dug a bit deeper using our intuition, and here's what we found. There are three bittersweet transitions that take place between a parent and a child. As you cross through that transition, you both want to step back, but you can't. These are mums telling me the story, but I'm a dad. I've got intuition. I know exactly where I was for the first one. It was the day my son, who was 10 at the time, turned the bedroom uh, door at uh, uh, Christmas Eve. His eyes were half full of tears. And he said, are you Santa Claus? It's like, boom. In that one second, <laughs> imagination, creativity. Uh, and what I really hurt was he said, I'm not your little dad. I'm not your little boy anymore, Daddy. I'm growing up. Now, Mia. So, so Mia does not remember the second bittersweet transition. You do. She can't even remember it took place. But you do, and you probably know where you were that day. I know where I was when my daughter was 13. I was on the outside of the curb. The pavement was inside me. Uh, Panera was on my left. It was a Tuesday morning, the day she dropped my left hand in public for the first time because she didn't want to hold daddy's hand in public anymore because it was awkward. I remember where I was. Most dads do. Girls do not. They don't even remember it took place. And the last one for us was when we drove her up to college a few years ago when she was 18. We hugged, we cheered, we laughed, put her in a dorm, got in the car and cried her eyes out all the way back to the airport. Now, don't forget, are going in hypotheses. We build it, they will come. Why? That's the way we've always done it here. And our data says they come from the new attractions. But by simply spending a day with the consumer, and using our intuition, we found out what was really important to them. Mum does not wake up every morning on a wet Wednesday in Niagara going, I wonder if Disney's going to have new attractions this year. No, she wakes up every single morning worrying about how quickly her children are growing up and how she wants to make special memories while they still believe, while they still hold my hand, 
while they're still here. That's a segmented communication campaign, one that drove record results, record revenues, and turned a very product-centric, we know better culture into a consumer-centric culture, where it's mandatory for every Disney executive to spend at least one day a year working at a frontline cast member position uh, in a Disney theme park. Ask yourself, when was the last time you did that? And the one day a year in the living room of one of your consumers, ask yourself if you've ever done that. We say we're consumer-centric, no, you're not because you've never spent a day with a consumer. Therefore, you are not consumer-centric. You're too arrogant. Yeah, I'm an executive. I couldn't possibly. I was the same. Get out of your offices. Get out of your data and go 100%. spend a day with your consumer. Um, and the last one is imagination. We're born with an amazing imagination. You still have one. You had that weird dream last week with David Beckham, Beyonce, and a unicorn that you don't want to tell me about. We all have weird dreams. Here's the thing, though. The most employable skill sets of the next decade are the ones you were born with. How do I know that to be true? Because I've worked with four artificial intelligence experts and I've asked them, do you believe we could program creativity, intuition, curiosity or imagination into AI in the next decade? And the answer is no. So think about all the jobs that can be programmed, right? There's a lot of them. Yep. Right. The ro robots are coming. They say that AI will take away 20 to 30 percent of the jobs in North America by 2030. That's not far from now. Right. So there's two pieces, I believe. One is if we actually put a, if we bring back all the core human traits that were important to us, that we were told were not important. I believe they will be the most employable skill sets of the next decade. And I'll go slightly further. Uh, and this one is a little radical, but I genuinely believe it. Um, we don't need to be scared of AI for two reasons. One is we've got the skill sets that AI won't have uh, at least any time in the next decade. And two is we will merge. We will become a superhuman race. It started with the uh, the Neuralink that uh, Elon Musk put into the big, pig's brain last week. Do you think we're going back from that? No, we're not. No. Imagine, imagine walking into a meeting 15 years from now and meeting somebody you haven't met for three years, but you can remember every single thing about that conversation and what took place. And uh, I mean, wouldn't you want that? Yeah, hell yeah. Look, our brains are brilliant. Uh, our brains, you used to remember all your best mate's telephone numbers. You can't remember them now. No. Because your, your brain has figured out that it doesn't need that disk space for phone numbers anymore. So it's freed it up to think about something else. So think about your memory being on a disk now. Suddenly, what, what other things could we do as a human race? It would be amazing. Now, I'll be long gone. <laughs> um, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's, but we shouldn't fear AI. But between AI and the human race, we will become a superhuman race. But even if you don't want the chip in the brain, um, I would argue just focus on the things that you actually did really well when you were a child and you'll do extremely well. Well, we're gonna, you're going to really love one of the quick fire round questions. Um, there's two things I got from that is number one, you know, I always tell my team, I uh, head up marketing, it's, it's always get out. Uh, get out of the office because that's where the, the you're gonna you're gonna you know solve problems. And two, it wasn't holding my daughter's hand; it was putting her on my shoulder. I can I know exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. The second okay. thing, the, the last thing I'll say is there. So, um, you know, as we you know, I, I want to be conscious of your time, but I can't I can't let you leave this conversation. Uh, maybe not necessarily because I think we really we've talked about some of the barriers of creativity, but really talking about a couple key concepts. Uh, one being the the naive expert, but mm. maybe even the outlier, because in the outlier, there's the Disney story, which I find fascinating. So maybe we can start with that one. If we have time, we can come back to the, to the naive expert. Um, Hang on, which is, remind me of the outlier. So it was the whole idea around how uh, Walt was trying to get, oh, it was Fantasia. Yeah, Fantasia. Oh, Fantasia. no, this is genius, right? We all know, I call it what if. 
Um, what if the rules in your organization no longer existed? Everybody always says, oh, we've got rules. Well, what do you think Walt Disney World's got? They host 25 million people a year. It's the largest single site employer in the United States of America. Guess what? They've got rules. <laughs> so, um, but wouldn't it be nice if you could break one? Metaphor. Why do you do a weekly meeting? Oh, we've always done a weekly meeting. Why do you do a weekly port? Oh, we've always done weekly. Why do you do performance reviews that nobody ever reads? Oh, because we've always done performance reviews. Well, stop. So, so here's what Walt did in 1940. He listed, he he showed Fantasia in the movie theater, and he realized that he wanted it to have mist inside the theater during the rain sequence. He wanted heat pumped in during the fire sequence, and the theater owner said no. So Walt listed the rules of going to movie theater. I must sit down. I must be quiet. I must go to set time. I can only watch one movie at a time. I Walt can't control the environment. So he said, well, what if I could? Well, that's not provocative enough. The more provocative and absurd your what-if question, the further out of your river of thinking, your area of expertise, you'll get. So he said, well, what if I take my movies out of theatre? An absurd suggestion. Well, wait a minute. If I take my movies out of theatre, well, they can't be two-dimensional. Well, what if I make them three-dimensional? Hmm. Well, then I'd have to have people play the characters. Well, what if I put them in costume? If I had people in characters, in costume, Cinderella can't live next to Jack Sparrow and David Crockett. People wouldn't be immersed in her story. Well, wait, what if I put her in a different land? Oh, wait a minute. What if I called it Disneyland? Boom. Gave birth to Netflix. The founder of Netflix listed the rules of going to Blockbuster. Had to be kind of rewind. Never get the one I want. Had to drive to physical store. And he said, what if there was no physical store? The founder of Facebook said, what if we could get together when we can't? came up with Facebook. The founders of Uber were in a bar. It was late at night. It was one o'clock in the morning. They'd had too much to drink. It was raining. And they just said, hey, what if every car, every car was a cab? Boom. And so it's just a genius. So it's easy to look at these big companies and make it unrelatable because you think, oh, I've got a much smaller budget. Well, no, that's an excuse. There was a very small company in Great Britain in the 70s that just made glasses that we drink out of. They only had about 28 employees. And they found that when they were shipping and wrapping the glasses, there was not enough production, too much breakage. So they went down to the shop floor and they observed and they wrote down the rules one at a time. 26 employees, conveyor belt, 12 glasses to a box, cardboard box, separated by a corrugated cardboard, glasses being wrapped in newspaper, employees reading newspaper. So somebody had the courage to ask the relatively provocative what if question, what if we poke their eyes out? Well, that's against the law and it's not very nice. But because he had the courage to ask the provocative and absurd what if statement, the lady sitting next to him said, well, wait a minute, why don't we just hire blind people? So they did. And their production went up 20%, breakage went down over 76%, and the British government gave them a 50% salary subsidy for hiring people with disabilities. Step one, list the rules of your industry without thinking about them, as many as you can, as quickly as you can. Step two, pick one of those rules, and in less than two minutes, ask as many what-if and absurd what-if statements as you can. The reason I'm asking you to do it fast is because if you do it slow, you'll think of all the reasons you can't do it. And then one of those will spark a new idea for a new industry. It's a very clever tool to use because you're metaphorically breaking the rules without actually breaking them. And again, we won't have to we have to dive into this, but the two other mm. kind of key concepts that kind of tie into that is bravery and the, the naive uh, expert. And the, the re one reason I like the naive expert is because it's obviously bringing somebody outside of that industry in. And I'm not from this industry that I'm currently in right now, and so. Uh, for the first year, I asked a lot of whys. What, why is it done this? So, way? And so mm -hmm. I, I really felt I connected with that with that concept. Um, and I think a lot of times you see that where the you know people see sometimes not having that domain or industry experience as a as a kind of weakness, but in some mm -hmm. cases it can actually no. be. It can be a hire people 
Hire people who don't know anything about what you're working on. Ooh, that's a bold and provocative statement, isn't it? Because otherwise you'll hire people that think like you. So what, how's that gonna help you? Um, that the, the, we say our biggest barrier is I don't have time to think. I would argue it's not. I argue it's called your river of thinking. All of your expertise and all of your experience and all the years you worked in that, you know a thousand reasons why the new idea that somebody comes into the office door with won't work and you instantly shut it down. Um, I was asked to design a new retail dining and entertainment complex for Hong Kong Disneyland. I had in the room 12 white male American architects over 50. That's called groupthink. So I invited in as my naive expert, a young female Chinese chef. What is the success uh, criteria for a naive expert? They don't work in your industry. That's it. They don't know what you're working on. So what does that give them permission to do that you can't? They can ask the silly question that you're too embarrassed to ask in front of your peers that needs to be asked. They can throw out the audacious idea ungoverned by your politics, your hierarchy and having to get it done. They will not solve the challenge for you ever, but they will say something to stop you thinking the way you always do your river of thinking to help you think differently. So we asked the architects to draw a house and we gave them seven seconds to do it. And if your listeners had a pen and a piece of paper, I'll give them those seven seconds. Please draw a house. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Pens down, let me describe your house to you. Uh, on the ground floor in the middle is a door. Above the door on either side, you've chosen to draw two windows, not four, and you're still so insecure, you drew bars over them. <laughs> and what shape is the roof? It's a bloody triangle. Why? Because your river of thinking, all your area of expertise says that's what a house looks like. You didn't even consider the alternatives. So the young female Chinese, we all held our pictures up. They all look the same as each other. We laughed because we realized we stayed in our river of thinking what a house looks like. Her picture, however, was dim sum architecture. It was a round bamboo dish with a front door and dim sum sitting on the top and a little chimney with a Chinese lady waving out the window. And so we laughed because she gave us permission to stop thinking traditionally about architecture and consider audacious architecture. Well, if any company in the world could consider audacious architecture, it'd be the Walt Disney Company. On the way out the door, um, uh, and if Disney Imagineer slapped a post-it note on her picture, which said, dim sum architecture, distinctly Disney, authentically Chinese. Seven Amazing. years later, the strategic brand positioning for Shanghai Disney Resort, distinctly Disney authentic Chinese, which guided everything, including the design of the resort. Amazing. Um, I feel like, you know, selfishly, I could, I could keep this going for another half an hour, but I, I definitely, again, want to, uh, cause again, you're, you, you're, you've, you've, you know, based on what we've talked about, there's, there's a couple of things. So your, your schedule's tight, but what I'd like to do is tying all this together what are some of the kind of key takeaways uh, really for any business, but I guess, you know, obviously for, for multi, you know, multifamily operators or, or just the real estate tech uh, industry. Um, Ooh, real estate. Just think what three, three dimensional printing is going to do to house price in the next two decades. It'll de it will decimate it. You'll be able to print houses for, $50 by the year 2040. Um, and think about what that would do for minimalism, which is coming anyway. Um, it just, the industry is going to get absolutely shit. If you aren't into 3D printing yet, you should be, because they're building houses in Houston. Oh, you should look it up. I saw it in the New York Times last week. They built a, a resort in Kenya on a 3D printer in a week. I mean, come on. Well, <laughs> What's so that going to do to the industry? It's amazing. Somebody I just spoke with who definitely is really into unique design, 
uh, in the real estate development. Um, I'm going to send this to them because they're, I think they're, they're going to run with that idea. Um, well, part two is corporate real estate. You're going to have to get out of that because that's going because 60% of your employees won't need to be in the office in two years from now because you know, Twitter has already announced nobody's coming back. JP Morgan has said probably nobody is ever coming back. All of the back of house employees will never come back. Cause, so th- what, what are we going to do with corporate? What will we do with multi-story car parks when everybody has self-driving cars? Right. I mean, it's all going to change. I think it's fascinating. I really, but I do think in terms of urban planning, for years the uh, the experts, the gurus, have always predicted that we will always come together as a human race, and cities will get bigger and bigger and bigger, and will there'll be five mega cities by the year 2050? I've always argued, no, technology will actually push us away from the big cities. If I could live in the, the middle of some beautiful place in Canada and still get my work done, I'd be a very happy man. Um, and I actually think COVID-19 just made that a reality. I don't think the megacities will continue in the direction they were. I do think that the, uh, the sprawl out into other areas will, will grow much faster than we'd anticipated before. It definitely seems like it, it's the trend. Okay, so yeah. we're going we're gonna to change gears. We're going to go into what I, I personally, um, you know, normally like to think of as my favorite part of the, the conversation, which, which is the quick fire round. So I'll say five short uh, questions and you'll have about 30 to 60 seconds to answer them. So okay. Duncan, are you ready? Ready. What's one thing you wish your phone could do? Give me more, put the memory into my brain. <laughs> okay. Two, do you agree or disagree with the following statement? A good decision today is better than a perfect one tomorrow. Always. Number three, what do you believe that others might disbelieve? Um, what do I believe that other people disbelieve? I think people don't think they can innovate. I think people don't think they're creative. I think they're idiots. Everybody's creative. Creativity is the ability to have an idea. You can do it. Innovation is the ability to get it done. Uh, and as Walt once said, if you can dream it, you can you can do it. Look at we put man on the space, we we put a chip into a pig's brain. Those were dreams. Those were science fiction dreams. Artificial intelligence, iRobot was written by um, Asimov in 1954, I think it was. Well, guess what? They're here. <laughs> so yeah, don't be scared. I you know when I left Disney after 30 years, was I scared? Of course I was scared. I thought I was stupid. <laughs> but uh, look, March this year. I became unemployed. I lost 100% of my business on March the 15th. I flew back from Copenhagen. I'm a speaker. I stand on stages. Guess what? That's not going to happen to the end of 2022 because people will be frightened to go to conferences and companies will be liable if they send their employees to a conference and the employee gets sick. Virtually, in the last three months, it's taken off. I've I've done one as an avatar. I've done two in virtual reality with a VR headset. Um, it's the technology. I can now speak through an artificial intelligence to in 15 different languages through Zoom live. And and now that opens up markets that I've never spoken to before. And by the way, I don't have to get 15 hours on a plane during a a pandemic to do it. So uh, don't be scared. Sounds like you did the what if exercise. Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) The next question, as a result of COVID, what have you changed your mind about lately? Gosh, well, that's a big question, isn't it? Bloody hell. It's just, it was, it's for all of us, isn't it? It's the importance of life, importance of family. And we forget that because we all go marching on our jobs and what our deadlines and everything else. And suddenly I went for, I'm sure, I don't know if Dylan or Mia came home or if they were at college or where they were, but my daughter was up in New York. She got furloughed, came back to Orlando. We went for a bicycle ride together. And don't forget, I still remember the day she dropped my hand. I haven't been on a bicycle ride with my daughter. She was, since she was six, she's now 25. 
and that was a wonderful day and i just think that the um yeah co and the sense of community and let's face it uh, this is where i well i'll keep politics out of it. some countries have a great sense of communities and other countries don't and i'd rather be in one that did absolutely and uh yeah i did definitely experience some of that uh similar similar to you as far as uh with family so definitely a, a silver lining um so last question and i promised to bring back ai so artificial intelligence fills you with hope or dread pick one hope it's easy it's coming it's here anyway so you can run away and pretend it's not coming like a pandemic no it's here but again the experts have already said you cannot program creativity you cannot program intuition and empathy you cannot program curiosity you cannot program intuition guess what they're all you've got all four you've just been told they weren't important for the last decade and again if you if you're younger yes you will be a superhuman but think you'll live to 200 years age you'll be able to think of things that I've never thought of before because your brain won't be cluttered with all the crap it has to think about at the moment because that'll be on a chip your iphone will be inside your head there's no question about that and you could be excited about it you could be terrified about it it's, it's called sort of saying like social media oh no no i need my privacy oh but wait i'm on facebook every day well make up your mind <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, so really, the, the, the final question here is, where can people find you on the interweb? Uh, the Fox and Hounds. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> in my <tr> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Duncan Wardle, D-U-N-C-A-N-W-A-R-D-L-E dot uh, com. Perfect. And I'll also put that in the show notes. I'll also put uh, some links to the uh, theory of creativity, uh, the the one that Jason and I saw. I think it's amazing. I think everyone should share, should watch it, and also share it with their team, um, and also share a couple other ones that we've I, I've found as well. Uh, listen, um, that's it for another episode, Duncan. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, yeah, until next time, uh, uh, keep swimming. Thank you very much, indeed. You've reached the end of another episode of Sink or Swim. Make sure to visit us at rentsync.com slash podcast to access show notes, key takeaways, and where you can sign up to our newsletter to receive free bonus content. If you found value in this show, please also remember to rate, review, and subscribe. That's this week's episode of Sink or Swim. Don't forget to join us next time for another jam-packed episode. Thanks for listening.